Hello, and welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm your host, Carol. Last episode, we talked to Joyson from South China Morning Post, SCMP, on China's two sessions and its plans for the next five years and beyond. We'd love to hear what you think, so don't forget to find us on Twitter and leave us a comment. And this week, we've invited two old friends of the show, Nadine Freshlad and John Russell from The Ken, to join us and talk about an exciting piece of news in the Southeast Asia tech scene, which is the record-setting grab SPAC. First of all, welcome back to the show, guys. Now, Nadine is a writer for The Can, and John is its Southeast Asia editor. And the last time that Nadine came onto the show, uh, it was last September, and you came here to talk about the tech scene in Indonesia and its influences by U.S. and Chinese tech giants. And I know that John last appeared last July, almost a year ago, to talk about Gojek versus Grab. So today's conversation on Grab is a natural continuation of both of our conversations. And you know what? I think it's been a very long time since I had a three-way conversation on the show. So I'm very much looking forward to this spectacular discussion. So before we start, which cities are you guys located in right now, and what have you been both up to since last appearing on the show? Ladies first. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. So you said you know last time we spoke it was September, and I think since then, obviously, like still writing, staying home most of the time. But I actually did a very sort of pandemic thing. I moved to the countryside. So when last we spoke, I was still in Jakarta, and now I'm actually based、uh, outside of Bandung, which is you know a city two hours from Jakarta. But I'm in the hills、uh, around Bandung, so that's been quite a change for me. That's so nice. I wish I could、uh, say the same. What about you, John? What have you been up to? I'm based in Thailand, so I'm usually in Bangkok. But I spent the last three or four weeks in the middle of Thailand, actually. So not I haven't permanently moved here, but it's like a place where my kids are off school. We sort of come here. I think there's a bit of a pandemic outbreak happening at the moment in Bangkok. So for the time being, I'm here, but I'm sure I'll be going back home at some point. I'm not sure where our listeners are, but I feel like they might be going through a similar journey with all of you. There's still, you know, a lot of exciting things happening, and I guess we're all just adjusting the way we work and live.、And、same thing with our conversation today. You know, we are all in different cities and different countries, and I heard this grab spec also was facilitated very much virtually. So let's get started. But before we start talking about you know Grab's forty billion dollar valuation SPAC, so let's talk about what we know from before. We knew that through Uber's S one form, which was filed a few years back, that Grab has to go public by the year twenty twenty three. And so going public for Grab has been on their roadmap and on our radar for a while now. So let's first help our audience, you know, understand and and let's set the scene. So first of all, what is a SPAC and how does it differ from a traditional initial public offering or IPO? I mean, just to circle back on your previous comment, Carol, when you said Uber kind of nudged Grab onto its IPO journey, and I think maybe you know Uber and Grab merged in two thousand eighteen, and since then, for sure, Grab has had that plan to. Go on an IPO route, and I think in the beginning it was the plan to go for a traditional IPO, and then you know COVID happened and this back frenzy happened, 
and I think the urgency to go public just became uh, stronger. So the spec was a way to just accelerate that timeline. And yeah, to your question, what what a spec actually is, I mean, the way I would explain it is it's it's just a mechanism to take a company public without going through the traditional IPO process. And the advantage of that is it's cheaper, associated with less fees, and that the companies involved do not have to do as many documents, as many filings to go through with it. And the way it works is you have one company that's called the blank check company, or some other jurisdictions also call it like a cash shell, that basically does the IPO first. In this case, you know, let's say in the US. And then the company that's already public identifies a target company elsewhere, in this case in Southeast Asia, and says we'll go through a merger. And then once that merger is completed, the target company becomes the listed company. So you have made a company public without going through the IPO itself. Did you want to add anything to that, John? No, I agree. I mean, as reporters who focus on Southeast Asia, it's a new thing for us, right? So only in the last probably like six to nine months that we've begun to understand what it is. Um, But yeah, I think for Grab, like there's a couple of things like Nadine said, like it's just a faster way to get to market. And I think at the moment, the market is good for tech companies, right? Based on, on the kind of growth that you've seen in the US and other places. There's a certainty about when you go public. So there are a lot of the issues that companies have and investors have is when you go public, you have to choose the sh- share price that you're going public at, right? But basically once the doors open, the price can pop. And so there's, for example, if the company's share price, you know, you want to see a decent pop. So you want to see a decent growth of the share price when the company does list, because obviously it shows you know, that there's positivity in the market it allows investors to exit to some extent too, right? But I think that the danger is that since a lot of the market right now is that it's hard to gauge what that pop looks like. And if the pop is too high, then people will sort of think that the company listed at a price that was too low and so left money on the table, right? If they listed at a higher price, they could have sold more shares and so on. Uh, or they could have made more money from the shares that, they, that they'd sold. And I think one thing about the SPACs, as I understand it, is that the valuation is set because there's no IPO process. There's actually the sort of pop isn't as, as extreme for a SPAC company as it would be for like a regular IPO company. And I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, that one of the benefits for Grab is that they got to essentially like agree what their valuation was before they went public. And so I think that's one thing also from SPACs that in this case made it the route that Grab took. Thank you for your explanations. You know, really gave our listeners an insight as to why certain companies would want to go through a SPAC versus a regular IPO. And just in case uh, you don't know, uh, SPAC actually stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. So now my next question is, which U.S. entity is Grab merging with and who are their backers or sponsors? The SPAC that Grab is merging with is called Altimeter Growth, and it's part of or was started by also Peter Capital, which is you know a well-established firm in the US, an investment company headed by a guy called Brad Gerstler. I personally didn't know much about Altimeter before this deal with Grab came about, but I think if you look up what Altimeter is known for, it was involved in the IPO of Snowflake, which is you know a big like, data storage company, I believe. And it's also been involved in another couple of blank check mergers, uh, such as for for a DNA testing company called 23andMe, which you've probably heard of. So it's, you know, a reasonably like well-established, well-respected, successful investment firm that just happened to be interested in the opportunity for a SPAC with a Southeast Asian firm and found 
you know, a good target and grab, I think. I definitely agree. I think the hard thing about SPACs is knowing is knowing what the merging company is, right? And it certainly seems, um, you know, that they have a very good re- reputation, albeit like mostly with US-based in- investments, but their kind of speciality is like taking companies to IPO. So I think if you're looking for a good steward to help grab, go public, they'd be one of the ones that I would I would think would be quite high on the list. And both of you talked about, you know, what are some of the advantages of going through a SPAC, but what are some of the potential problems for, for going this route or problems for, for this company, you know, with the Grab SPAC? Yeah, I mean, from my personal perspective, I think we're going to find out because I think Grab is a unique, certainly a new company going to SPAC, right? I think if you look at the examples in the US, I'm sure your listeners know that there's a huge increase in like SPAC and I think um, Virgin Galactic being one of the more like higher profile companies, right? It mostly tended to be US businesses and and so Grab is really like a step into the, into the unknown for a lot of people, right? We don't really know. There's not many companies from Southeast Asia that are listed in, in the US anyway. Obviously, C, the Shopee and Garena parent, is the most high profile and, you know, a great story in terms of like the growth that it's seen in, in the last year and a half, probably. But I mean, like, we don't really know what's going to happen with Grab. And so I think, I, especially with SPACs, right, there's not like a huge, far than away, there's not a huge sort of history of like, many, many SPACs going to, going to market. So I think I've been reading recently that there is a concern that growth in SPACs is going to come back to um, haunt in, in investors at some point. There's like SPAC f- fatigue or whatever you want to call it, right? There's kind of too many deals that are going through. So I think from, from personally, like I'm quite curious to see what, what, what happens. I mean, in theory, like it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a big issue because once a company is public company right you judge that company based on the revenue that's seeing the kind of growth that it that it's seeing so in theory like grab shouldn't have an issue once it goes public as long as it can as long as the numbers and the growth that it's seeing kind of justify the share price and the overall valuation the company gets and it shouldn't make a big a big difference like the way that it gets onto the public markets at least as i understand it anyway no, I just wanted to add, I mean, because you asked about the potential downside, I think, you know, part of the reason why SPACs have become so popular is because for the most part, especially for the investors themselves and for the founders, there isn't really like a big downside. It's a more sort of controlled and more managed process than if they were to go through a real IPO. But maybe one, I don't know, just like one risk that I see is that maybe it's a little bit early for Grab, actually, you know, the the timeline that you mentioned earlier with with agreed upon with uber was like before 2023 so also in terms if you compare where grab is at now with where uber was when it you know itself went public grab is still actually quite immature so one risk maybe that i see is that jumping on this back bandwagon now maybe you know grab could have waited another one or two years if the conditions were were a bit different Interesting that John mentioned uh, C, uh, because Altimeter also actually counts C uh, amount its holdings. So we know that uh, Grab and Altimeter have released a selection of documents that reveal the state of their various businesses. I'm sure uh, you've read some of these documents. What are some of the most interesting findings uh, for the both of you? We did do, I'm going to shamelessly promote the story that we did, right? And I guess that's why we're here, right, on the podcast. Not to promote the story, but because we did that story, right? So we kind of crawled through through data i think that there's a lot of i mean it's i'd say like it's not usually when companies go public right they open up their books and you get like incredible amounts of access to the to numbers talking about like hundreds of pages of like 
of like in-depth kind of data. This didn't really happen, I didn't think with Grab. And it was weird. It was like it was like a kid a kid friendly document, right? It wasn't particularly long. The fonts were really nice. There were charts in there. It was kind of like a accessible doc, right? I think in terms of the numbers, I mean, perhaps uh, perhaps uh, Nadine, you, you might want to go uh, t- talk about that a bit because I know that you went through them in a bit more detail than I did, right? Did I? <laughs> I think we both kind of poured over numbers quite a bit, but. I mean, the question was which interesting takeaways were there. So, I mean, to me, I think there wasn't like a huge surprise, but just seeing, you know, how the different verticals stack up against each other. And the surprise a little bit there for me was how little the financial services arm still contributes. Um, I know it's still very, very early days for Grab and its financial services. Even in the projections that it provided in that document, you know, which go for the next three years, I believe, you can still see that even, you know, from Grab's most optimistic projections, the financial services remains fairly small compared to other verticals. And it's interesting because actually a lot of Grab's story and the valuation that it has now hinges on this believability that it's actually more than a ride-hailing and food delivery company, right? So I think in the next couple of years, that's where it's going to have to prove itself the most. Yeah, that's true. And I think that that feeds into what you said, right? That maybe they could have waited a bit longer. I think that's interesting. I mean, I don't have any insight in information, but you do wonder why, you know, if Grab had waited, I could have waited a little bit longer, whether, you know, they could have shown a bit more growth. Uh, the financial services play is very, very nascent. It's much more about like what we would like to do, right? Whereas they haven't got much evidence of it yet. And so it does, it does make you think like, were they forced to beyond the Uber agreement? Was it that they couldn't really raise any more private capital? I mean, they've raised so much money anyway, right? More than $10 billion. It does make you wonder like why they couldn't have sort of waited to, for the financial services play to sort of bloom a, a little bit more because then it would have given investors a bit more sort of certainty. Whereas I think right now the numbers that they released, as uh, Nadine said, like they don't really show the financial services business doing that much. And I think that's a critical piece because if it's going to be more than just the Uber of Southeast Asia, they really do need to be able to show that they that they can do financial services in a, in a meaningful way. And I don't think the numbers which Grab released, which were clearly like very ch- cherry-picked, right? They didn't, even those numbers, which they'd selected very carefully, didn't really, you know, make that point, which is quite interesting, I think. And apologies, I should have mentioned this earlier. The reason why I invited you two, especially here today to talk about this topic, is because you co-authored uh, this article on the ripple effects of Grab's U.S. $40 billion record SPAC listing, which is available on the Ken um, for our listeners who are interested in reading more. So because you, you know, poured over uh, these documents across the different business lines, where do you think the growth engines will come from? You know, given the low margins for their mobility business and the amount of subsidies uh, needed to to keep all the drivers on the Grab network. I mean, I think that, you know, ties back in with what we were speaking on earlier. I think financial services will eventually have to come through as something where Grab can demonstrate a a growth engine, not not in terms of just top line growth, but also like profitability. What we do see is that its mobility business is actually, in terms of profitability, the healthiest at the moment. Food delivery itself is still generating a lot of revenue, but but also is still you know a, a sector where where Grab's bleeding. So yeah, I mean I think that's still a big question mark. You know what will actually be the growth engine? of Grab. Uh, and in that way, it's it's quite different to the way that the C is set up. Yeah, it's true. But I think, it, 
it's really hard to call, right? I mean, if you're looking at C's business, I remember when they went public, what, like 2017, right? Their stock price stayed really, really low for such a long time, maybe like 18 months or maybe even, even two years before Shopee began to show the kind of growth that, you know, got people excited. And I mean, Grab in a very sort of bullish case could be that that similar company, right? They could, their delivery business, like the the rides business and the, and the, the food business could generate, I think it's a billion dollars in joint profit is what they're predicting, or, or at least based on, on those two uh, units, so not overall profitability. But they but they could both generate like a billion dollars, I, th- I think it is, for Grab uh, in the next couple of years on an annual basis. And then that could, in theory, be money that goes back into the financial services business and helps that to grow with the, the longer term goal of that being a business that could, I guess, be a lot more profitable without having to inject uh, you know, so much cash. Because I think that Food and and rides, as we know, it is very dependent on sort of on sort of two sided promos, so promos to users and obviously to the drivers that are going out there. And in the case of food, also also uh, the, um, the actual uh, restaurants that are making the food. So I think financial services is probably what they see as it could be uh, a much more lucrative business. But as we said, like there's a, there's no obvious sign that's about to ha- um, happen. So it's very much, I guess, a, a bet that in- investors would would have to make at this point based on not much information. The other company that Grab is often compared to, at least loosely, is a food delivery company in in China, Meituan. And I believe Meituan makes most of its money and it's been profitable with food delivery. And I think it makes its money through the sort of advertising, internal advertising network, mostly, if I'm not mistaken. So just, you know, having a huge network of merchants who are using the platform as a means to advertise and promote their services. So I do think, you know, that's that's a business model that, that Grab's also striving for. And we started our conversation uh, with a mention of Uber. So we, we know that, you know, Uber has about a 27% stake in the company. So I'm quite interested in how do they stand to gain from this Grab spec? What are some of the upsides and impacts? On, on paper, at least, they've done really well, right? They did have 20-something percent when they did exit Southeast Asia as part of that agreement, but that has been diluted down you know with subsequent fundraising for grab and obviously this this deal so i think it's something like 16 percent is there is i think their stake as a percentage but as the valuation that the grab has been given for this deal is i think like about six and a half billion dollars which uber had said before that they'd spent around like 700 million in southeast asia that was their estimate for what they'd spent right when they when they'd exited the region so in theory like you know, if you take them at, the, at, at their word and they spent $700 million, then, you know, they're almost $6 billion up <laughs> based on this grab SPAC. So I think it's quite, it's a very, it was a very smart deal at the time because they didn't really concede so much as they just said, you know, well, let this, this, this company is obviously in a better position than us. I think Uber was warming up for its own IPOs, had, had to cut some, some costs that weren't quite core cool to them, I think. You know, for for them, it's obviously a great position to be in. You know, they could, in theory, they could they could sell some of their some of their Grab um, position to generate cash. They could they could leave it for a while and you know bet that Grab is going to grow. Or I guess they could, you know, in theory, it could be a play for them if they wanted to, for whatever reason, get back into Southeast Asia. They could also probably buy back into Grab's business. I mean, that's it's, that seems less likely at this point. But you know, with with a, with a decent chunk of the of the company, I guess anything's possible, right? I would just agree, you know, Uber really had a, a good instinct here, I guess, and it pan, looks like it's panning out for them. 
So sometimes I guess a step back is indeed a step forward. So who are some of the other investors from Grab's you know, earlier rounds other than Uber that will stand to gain? I mean, SoftBank's the big one, right? I think they have like 20-something percent. And then a bunch of other investors, Didi, Toyota. Given that Grab raised so many funds, rounds of, of venture capital and uh, private funding, there are a lot of people who stand to gain. I think the interesting part is yeah, there's some early investors in Southeast Asia that stand to do pretty well. So I think 500 startups in particular, they had a pretty good link with Grab. And obviously Grab being founded in Malaysia before they moved over to Singapore. And Malaysia is where, you know, one of the 500 startups founders is, 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 is from Malaysia. So they had the very early deal access. And it's kind of ironic because 500 startups have done so many deals, you know, across the early stage. I mean, basically, like, in many ways, they've sort of spread bet on Southeast Asia, you know, writing very small checks for a whole bunch of companies. And I think, like, this IPO, I, I haven't checked the numbers, but I imagine it would probably return the one of the first funds that they did, if not more than one fund. And they also have some other companies that are, you know, apparently lining up to, to do SPACs too. So it's kind of ironic, right, that they've invested in a whole bunch of companies and a lot of very small businesses got their start from 500. And then they're also going to be like one of the major benefactors of um, this grab SPAC and potentially some from other companies too. I think that's their strategy, right? If we mention 500, we would also mention East Ventures, right? I think they were also involved in one of the very, very early rounds. So yeah, it's definitely like, I think, yeah, probably the first major exit and this scale for a lot of these uh, early stage investors too. Yeah, and I think, I think that's amazing because it really does show LPs and other people that there is potential in Southeast Asia. So obviously like SoftBank is the real winner, but I mean, they've already won so much from other IPOs like, you know, uh, Coupang in Korea and a bunch of others. So for them, it's just more money to pile on. But I think the interesting part is, is the early stage guys and, you know, whether it starts to sort of lure folks from outside of the region to investing for the first time in Southeast Asia because they might be able to find the next uh, the next big thing. I think you kind of answered, you know, my next question. But what is the impact of the SPAC towards the Southeast Asia market as a whole, specifically, you know, to the startup and the VC ecosystems? Because we hear um, a lot of these um, in investors in Grab's earlier rounds or uh, a lot of these, you know, Asian funds uh, investors. And also we mentioned see limited recently their market cap also have gone above the 100 billion us dollar mark and then of course there's the gojack and tokopedia merger we all know about yeah if you want to comment more on this southeast asia tech trend how does that impact the entire tech scene there well because i think i could do a podcast on this topic alone right it's probably like an hour's worth of conversation i mean there's so much right obviously like i think there's already funds that are moving into Southeast Asia, actually from outside of the region based on Grab. And I know it's such an obvious signal, right? You know, the world's largest SPAC. There's a huge tag that goes with that, but it, it's a good way to get interest. So a bunch of firms who are not in Southeast Asia are already like actively doing deals here. That's obvious, right? Because, you know, you follow the money. I think the interesting part is very much the early stage stuff. So potentially there's employees that who work at Grab, who've, who've got like a decent amount of stock. What they do with that, when they sell that, do they leave Grab? Do they start, you know, doing their own angel deals? Do they start their own firms, their own funds? Like, I think there's a lot of potential. Like, this is, this is what built Silicon Valley, like the virtuous cycle, right? People go work for companies, they get stock, they get an exit, they put that money in again. And I think this is the first time that we've really seen that in Southeast Asia. I think the CIPO wasn't that because they didn't really give out stock to, to lots of people. I think a lot of, Senior folks have made 
made millions from it, probably tens of millions because the share price has done so well, but it, it didn't have the same kind of halo effect, right? It, it wasn't like uh, rank and file people were, were, were getting equity. I know that Grab doesn't give out equity like, like it's candy. There are, there, there are some limits, but as far as I know, like a lot of people with sort of mid management upwards um, could, do, could do quite well out of the IPO. And you know, potentially, if Grab does what C did and you know grows even further than in the obvious multiples, then you know you you could start to see some some different kind of money going back into the region. I think that we, despite having some very good investors, um, we don't have you know serial. I guess serial founders don't exist here as investors yet. And so I think like that's the exciting part for me is it's potentially you could have you know folks who've worked in the industry who start their own funds or a bit more active with um, angel deals or who you know they've gone through the grad process and they think to themselves actually i want to start my own, my own company and i think it's, it's happened to, to some extent with uh, some grab and some gojek kind of folks that effect is going to be much, much greater after the ipo i'd think sorry that's a very long answer but i think we could talk for hours on it anyway <laughs> understood and and i guess we'll have to you know look out for the grab mafia in a, in a few years and uh, that's the ripple effect that you write about as well right yeah and i think i mean you hear about it now right people saying there's a grab mafia now i don't think that there is at the moment i don't think it really exists yet because i don't think that people who've worked there and who've left who are these so-called like grab mafia people they they didn't really they weren't there for that long and they didn't you know ride full way so i think that you're absolutely right like now is a time you can really say there will be like grab mafia and gojek mafia and tokopedia mafia and all, the, all those other companies that hopefully also follow Grab's pathway to going public. And you mentioned uh, Gojek and Tokopedia, so they're probably going to merge uh, into GoTo, and that will likely happen within this year. So Grab's key war will still be in Indonesia. So what do you think that means for the competition in the Indonesian market? You know, I think like it doesn't really change anything about the competition in the Indonesian market. I think it's still on and it still kind of feels like it's early days all over again. So I think with Tokopedia and Gojek, you know, they'll actually be in quite a tough position going through a merger. It takes, you know, time, resources, maybe. Uh, it's not it's not that easy, right? Um, and Grab is already strong in, in so many areas. It's surpassed Gojek in some regards. So it's going to be really tough for GoTo, which I still have to get used to saying. It's not just Grab and GoTo. Is it GoTo or is it GoTo? <laughs> no, it's supposed to be GoTo, I guess. But um, we'll see. Gotcha. And it's not just Grab and, and Go2, right? It's also C is like the third strong player at the moment in Indonesia. And they've already surpassed Tokopedia with their e-commerce platform Shopee. And now they've started, you know, really catching up on the payments side. They've started going into digital banking and even food delivery. So... Yeah, I think with the presence of C and just given how much, you know, how strong and how how much cash C has, it kind of feels like the competition is only just starting over again in Indonesia. So you don't think the competition is going to be any easier that, you know, Grab will still need to bleed to win market shares in Indonesia? I believe so, yes. It's definitely not going to be like an easy ride from here on. And whether that's, you know, go to or whether that's C, they'll still have to fight for their share in Indonesia for sure. I think... Just to add one more thing, but I think that the irony is actually it could, it's a very different position, right? Because if you look at C, like investors have cut them a lot of slack because they've grown so, so much. I'm sure they're spending a huge amount of money in Indonesia and eventually in, in other markets to sort of grow their business. And usually as a public company, right, you, you want to see your company grow, but you also want to see 
that they can be uh, be pr- profitable. But it feels like like C's earned so much goodwill from the market that actually they they've cut them a lot, a lot of slack. I just wonder if Grab and and GoTo and others whether they'll have that same freedom and whether I don't know the numbers that Grab are going to be releasing, but whether they will be under pressure to be profitable and whether they're, they're going to show the losses that they're making in various different countries that they're in. One interesting fact that I noted is that, you know, Anthony Tan, one of Grab's co-founders, has about 2% stake in Grab, but holds 60% of the voting shares on the board. What does that mean for the shareholders and for, you know, the employees overall? I think it's kind of typical for the way tech companies nowadays go public. You know, they make arrangements so that the founder can still stay in control. And I guess everyone involved believes that it makes sense because the tech environment is so dynamic and so fast and it requires quick decision making. So they kind of allow the founder to to stay in full control. I mean, in this grab case, it, it seems quite extreme. But overall, that the founder or management team gets voting shares or higher, you know, voting power seems to be quite normal at the moment. Yeah, I think it's a norm. And I think if you look at Grab as a business as well, like Anthony Tan is like the father of the company, right? And it's very, he very much cultivates this like family approach. And like, he's the sort of uh, patriarch. So I'm not, I'm not massively surprised, to be honest with you. And I, and I also would guess, and again, this is just my, my hunch, that these are conditions that doing the SPAC deal has made this more more possible, right, than having to go on a roadshow and, and pitch it to investors. Because I think Altimeter backs Grab where, in terms of the SPAC. And I think that's the most important thing. So I think if they're on board with it, then I think it sends a really good signal to others. So I would think that that's also one of the reasons why that Grab has gone down the SPAC route is that he can retain that, that sort of uh, voting control that would be much harder to do otherwise. Is he like the Jack Ma of Grab? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Well, I guess we'll see what happens afterwards, right? Because Jack Ma's story really, you know, only only began with Ali, Ali, right? And there was also Anne and other stuff too. So wait and see, right? <laughs> and that's my next question. Where do you see Grab's future lie, you know, beyond the SPAC? I can just say like briefly, like I, I do think it's interesting. I think n- nobody obviously has the answers, right? And But I think Grab has been too big to fail for some time if you think about it because the investors that they have are, are huge so getting to IPO is going to be is going to be a real the first real test right of uh, public markets and I think it's tough because I think if you look at C has had such an outstanding run in the last year and a half or two years like nobody really saw that coming that it would grow to be you know a 120 billion dollar company I don't think that anybody anybody could say they really saw that that coming so yeah I you know I think if grab does well like we mentioned earlier the financial services play comes through the sort of bread and butter bits of their business can be profitable and that that will put them in a good in a good place and i could imagine i could imagine that given you know c is priced four times higher or the valuation is four times higher that there would be room for grab to grow but i think it's too early for us to really know because the more detailed numbers aren't really out so we can't really pour through like business in that much detail at this at this point right so i think yeah unfortunately i'm going to sort of like pass on that answer and say we'll see (laughs) yeah i mean some of what john said you know i would i would uh, underline that in some ways grab is a little bit too too big to fail it's at the moment just you know the only other major tech company from southeast asia that you could invest in through the public markets and maybe that alone will kind of, you know, make make this a success story. But yeah, in general, a lot of this is just 
basically a collective belief in the future of Southeast Asia and the role that tech companies will play in this future of, of the economy. So, and Grab is definitely like one of the, you know, important companies on that front. So I think, yeah, overall, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I think also what it's going to do is it's going to bring other companies into into play also. So I think there will be other tie-ups, right? Like you've seen, obviously, obviously Gojek and Tokopedia come together. There's no reason that, you know, some crazy stuff that, or stuff that sounds crazy now, like, for example, perhaps Ali, Alibaba sells Lazada or Alibaba invests in Grab, finally. Or, you know, there's, I think it begins to open up options, right? It's definitely not end game. It's not like... You know, grab goes public, and that's and that's that. There's a lot more stuff that's going to start to to take take place now, right? So I think grab itself is ambitious. I think that they will also look at other areas that they can get into too. So I think I think it's only just the start, really. And um, there's there's a whole lot of stuff that could happen both with other companies and within Grab's own business too. Indeed, that is only the start. And I think that is one of the most exciting elements about reporting in the tech scene. I'm sure you, you'd agree that, you know, there are always unexpected things happening. And, uh, you know, you see this one milestone, but really it's just the, the door to another great journey uh, that we're only uh, starting to embark on. So thank you so much to you both for sharing your insights on this exciting story. And our listeners, uh, like I said earlier, if you're interested in learning more about about uh, the Grab story, you can go on theken.com to read the uh, report that or the article that Nadine and John has written. So uh, to conclude our today's conversation, I still have uh, one very exciting question for you both, which is, can you both recommend a book, a podcast, or something that has uh, inspired you recently? <laughs> this, this, is the, this is the hardest question for sure. Like, I uh... I'm, I'm just really encouraged that there's a, there's a lot of, a lot more media attention on Southeast Asia. So I think just in in general, I'm able to read a lot more than say like a, a few uh, years years prior, right? Which is obviously great for analyzing stuff like Grab and other things that are going on. So so my kind of lame answer is like is like I read around, I listen around. There's a lot more media, there's a lot more podcasts that are going on. So I, I'm kind of optimistic about where. I guess uh, media and particularly business media is 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 headed in uh, in this in this part of the world. I think it's at least on par with the way that tech companies are, are also headed, which is which is obviously good. Yes, that's something that really excites me too. And uh, I just wish, you know, the pandemic situation would improve so that we can start to meet people in person again and, and, you know, talk about all of these great, exciting stories in Southeast Asia that inspires all of us, but maybe in person. And what about you, Nadine? Gosh, I've been thinking about this and I do, you know, listen, I binge listen to a lot of podcasts, but uh, I, in terms of like discoveries or recommendations, I mean, I l really like to listen to this series called Housework. It's with a, a therapist or like a, a psychoanalyst called Esther Perel, and she's speaking with just, you know, not necessarily romantic couples, but just people who work together and how they've survived through the pandemic and all the conflicts and little um, coping tricks that they've developed to just make it through this time. And I found that to be a quite interesting series that just takes me into the lives of different people. And yeah, check it out if you're interested in that. Yeah, that is a very... Um 2021st pandemic kind of a podcast, a recommendation. Thank you. And last but not least, how can my audience find both of you? 
Um, for me, probably best uh, to find me on Twitter, where I'm at N Freischlad. So that's N F R E I S C H L A D. And with my name, you can also find me on LinkedIn and add me. I'm usually pretty active there. Yeah, I think same uh, on Twitter, which is just my name, uh, John Russell, and uh, LinkedIn also the same. Yeah, I think we're we're pretty we're pretty cliche journalists in that we that's the social media that we use. But um, yeah, at least that makes it easy to sort of uh, find us anyway, right? Don't worry, because same here. You can find Analyze Asia on our podcasting platform as well as on Twitter, and we welcome all sorts of feedback. We love to hear from our listeners. You can find me on Twitter as well.、Uh, you can just search Analyze Asia. That is Analyze with an S. So it has been a spectacular conversation with the both of you. Thank you so much for coming on, and I do、um, wish to speak to you again, and maybe in person next time, some、uh, somewhere in Southeast Asia. Again, thank you, Nadine, and thank you, John, from the Ken, for coming on to analyze Asia. Thanks so much for having us. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. <laughs>